1: Stay on target. Maximum. Stay on Maximum. Rothbard. <laughs> Well, hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and an anarcho-capitalist perspective. Tonight is episode 95 of the show, and we're going to be talking about several movies, uh, primarily The Magnificent Seven, the 1960 60 version, and the 2016 version. However, I also watched the um, origin of this entire like concept or this story of Seven Samurai. So I've probably overwhelmed myself in uh, taking in all this content, so hopefully I have something cogent to say to my co-host robert who is with us here wearing his wife beater how are you doing sir
0: what's my name heisenberg you <laughs> fucking son of a bitch it's not what you're <laughs> supposed to say
1: uh did i screw it up already all right yeah Perfect. you already screwed it up right out of the gate this this show has fallen off the rails and you can find the show notes and more at actualanarchy.com slash 95 so robert hey, correct sir. me and then we'll get into the last night's portion of the show correct you about what what was the answer i was supposed to give you when when you asked me your name yes
0: Well, you're supposed to tell me what my name was. I ask you what my name is. You say, waiting.
1: Do you know my name? (laughs) Robbie J. (laughs) Damn right. All right. And that is the uh, actual anarchy portion of the show. Let's get into the last nighters. did do 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 Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, the Last Nighters. Welcome to the show. We're going to talk about The Magnificent Seven. This is episode 38 of the show. You can find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 38. If you like what we do here, you can also support us at Patreon. So go to lastnighters.com slash Patreon. Let's uh, say hello to Robert before we get into the Google description portion of the show. What's up, everybody?
0: Robbie J back here for another episode about the original free market solution to dealing with warlords
1: but without government wouldn't warlords take over
0: no well unless you believe that this movie is like totally ridiculous or the series of movies would never happen and it's like it was crazy fantasy setting which i don't think so at all i think it's you know it's, it's it's obviously a story but there's a lot of real humanity in the telling and i think that's how people can identify with these stories and that's why it's persevered all this time
1: thank you for the mini rant um before you went off on that, I was going to say that having states is evidence that warlords have taken over. So <laughs> kind of a long, <laughs> long finish. Well then where
0: are my seven samurai? Protect <laughs> exactly me from these assholes.
1: Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a good question. This episode can also be found on the Launchpad Media where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Do check it out. There are exclusive shows and other content coming out every day. And The Last Nighters is proud to be a part of it. So do check that out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. But let's get into the Google description, shall we? So the first one from 1960, Magnificent Seven, thriller action movie, 2 hours and 8 minutes, 7.8 on the IMDb. 93% of the Rotten Tomatoes and 89% of the Google users like it. The description is thus... A Mexican village is at the mercy of Calvera, the leader of a band of outlaws. The townspeople, too afraid to fight for themselves, hire seven American gunslingers to free them from the bandits' raids. The professional gunmen train the villagers to defend themselves, then plan a trap for the evil Calvera. came out on October 23, 1960, directed by John Sturgis, and is starred by um, Steve McQueen and uh, Charlie Bronson, uh, Ewell Brenner, and a bunch of other um, semi-famous and famous types from the, the old Westerns. And apparently there were also several um, spinoffs or like sequels to this, like The Magnificent Seven Rides Again and The Guns of the Magnificent Seven, something like that. And then a recent reboot from 2016 with Chris Pratt and Denzel Washington, including the United Benetton... Um, <laughs> Colors of Cast, uh, uh, which, you know, it's kind of okay, I guess. Um, I didn't hate that movie as much as I thought I would. But let me uh, read that description real quickly, and then we'll get into our the meat and potatoes of the show here, Robert. So... The remake, 2016, also called The Magnificent Seven, crime and action movie, 2 hours and 13 minutes, 7.1 on IMDb, 63% of Rotten Tomatoes, 54% 54 Metacritic, and 89% of Google users. Just like the uh, 1960 version. That's cool. And the description is thus. Looking to mine for gold, greedy industrialist Bartholomew Bogue seizes control of the old west town of Rose Creek. With their lives in jeopardy, Emma Cullen and other desperate residents turn to bounty hunter Sam Chisholm, played by Denzel Washington. Uh, They seek him for help. Chisholm recruits an eclectic group of gunslingers to take on Bogue and his ruthless henchmen. With a deadly showdown on the horizon, the seven mercenaries soon find themselves fighting for more than just money once the bullets start to fly. Uh, directed by Antoine Fuqua, who, um, uh, going into it, I thought he might have Fuqua'd this, uh, this story up, but he actually did okay. Um, did okay at the box office, um, $162.4 million on a $90 million budget. Your commentary so far, Robert?
0: Well, you've read those descriptions magnificently, Daniel. Just as magnificently as some sort
1: of reader guy. In just under seven minutes, I might add. Well done.
0: Uh yeah, the the movies are very, very similar, although I suppose the the remake is obviously I think more money was spent far better production values, really nice camera work. Whereas the original 1960, you know, looks like a movie from the sixties and it a lot of s- still camera shots and not a lot of pretty scenery going on. But you know, for me, from my perspective, the most glaring difference. And I think the original thing I said to you when I originally pitched this movie to you was the original was a very libertarian movie. It was a, a group of people in a village that were under attack by some gang and They didn't necessarily have a lot of money. So it's not like, you know, people are only looking out for their own best interests and blah, blah, blah. People are greedy and stupid, stupid, stupid. But the gunfighters, even in the face of like a hopeless situation, saw that there was wrong going on and did what they could to seek justice in this world. Whereas in the second, in the remake movie, that's still true, but the villain has been replaced from this gang of marauding thieves to this caricature of a robber baron, where he's just the most evil piece of crap ever, and he goes in and he violently like there's there's scenes where they like free the people working in the mine, they like kill all the guards and they're like, hey, you're free, you can leave now. Well, are they slaves or were they working there voluntarily? It's not really made clear. Um, he, you know, he's he's out to just steal all the land, but yet he offers to buy the land at gunpoint, I might add. But anyway, it's really just the this caricature of, of what a robber baron is. And it just annoyed me that this kind of caricature survives to this very day, where the original robber barons did amazing things for humanity. Incredible innovations that made so many people's lives better, and yet they get no thanks, they get vilified by history. And I'm not saying that they're angels, they're probably just human beings, but... There's a real easy way to you know defend yourself against the evil, vile robber barons. Not use their products. That's all you got to do. Not buy the oil or use the railroad or whatever that is being offered to you. It's just being offered to you. You don't have to use it. Anyway, it just annoyed me, but... In the sense that it's about, you know, a group of people coming together to defend themselves and others from an aggressor. They're essentially the same movie and they're both really good in that regard. But I want to hear what you had to think about all three because you watched all three. I didn't watch Seven Samurai. Uh,
1: Have you seen Seven Samurai? Uh,
0: I'm familiar. I don't know if I've ever actually seen it or definitely not the whole thing through. And if I have, it's escaped my memory.
1: Okay. Well, it's one of those movies that I feel as a movie critic slash reviewer slash podcast shot caller host man uh is is definitely worth seeing like it's a very beautiful film and it's it's a slow burn but the time goes actually rather quickly because you um the craft of of what he's doing there is he's letting you in on knowing the motivations behind each of the seven samurais you get to know them pretty well and then when they you know a few of them fall near the end um you know, you, you get the, the heartstrings tugs because like, oh, that guy. Oh, no, you know, but it's definitely worth seeing. Now, it's not in our shared library, I don't think. But, um, you know, maybe if, if you do come up here at some point, I'll be able to share it with you digitally. Something along those lines, because we can, you know, show it here. Anyway, um I felt like the between the three films, the first one. Seven samurai was the best of the three the second one the remake 1960 the western style version I thought it was pretty pretty good pretty well done and it has high praise like people talk about it, it as a great movie um, I feel like it was really good for the most part and it's got a lot of famous actors you know McQueen and Charlie Bronson and and uh, yule Brenner but it felt like after you know the two hour mark or the hour and 50 minutes they just wanted to wrap it up real quick and so it sort of falls apart near the end but yeah
0: there's definitely some Filler moments in the original Magnificent Seven where you're like, is this scene necessary? Is this one? Is this overacting completely necessary? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a fair amount of that. Now, that could be, you know, how we talked about with Chuck Heston in the uh, Planet of the Apes, you know, roughly the same time period, right? And a lot of actors uh, were from stage versus from screen and and a lot of these guys, I think were television actors, part of that as well. And so I think there's sort of a different method of acting that kind of goes into that. And so you kind of get more of the looking on it now. It looks like they overacted a bit. The young kid farmer. You can't tell me that that was even slightly good acting. Well, he's, he's overacting tri- in every scene. He's every trying- scene. He's trying to emulate Mufune, that that guy in um, Seven Samurai, because he's the crazy drunk guy in Seven Samurai, Mm -hmm. and he he is over the top, but he is like also the the big draw. He's also you know like the one who really stood out, stole the show, if you will. And so I think this guy who, how do we know who he is? Um, Do you know who who played the young uh, farmer guy in the sixty version?
0: No, the name escapes me.
1: Yeah, see, and and I I sing with me, and so I feel like he's one of those guys that um, probably wasn't as established as the other actors. Like Steve McQueen was super famous at the time. I think um, Chuck Bronson was, Yul Brenner was, and all those guys. And so I think he, and this is maybe, I'm making a lot of this up, too, but it seems to me like if if, you're, if your source material is Mufune in Seven Samurai, who is this boisterous, over-the-top, crazy guy uh, acting, um, and then you're shooting a film with three or four super famous people at the time, and you've got the crazy role, you're going to try like really hard to <laughs> stand out. You know what I mean?
0: If that's the case, then I can give him sort of a pass,
1: but in this
0: movie, it comes off really terribly. Like, the, you are a terrible actor. What was the director even doing letting those takes get into the final film? But if, if it is as you say it is and everybody was on board with this crazy overacting, then okay. But especially the original, the very first scene he comes in where he's drunk and he comes into the bar and he's just raging. It, it's just atrocious like not even slightly realistic, but you know, whatever.
1: Yeah, I thought that that he would have gotten shot if, if that were like a real situation and someone goes in like that. I mean, yeah, someone's going to shoot him pretty quickly. Now we've, we've talked about this before, but the Wild West really wasn't all that wild. And I think there's a, um, a couple of books about this and a few articles. Um, I think the book is called The Not So Wild West. Uh, look that up on Amazon. We'll put a link for that down below. But essentially um, the uh, the whole concept that, that modern people day people have of, oh, the Wild West was violent, lots of gunfights and all that is a Hollywood contrivance. Um, I think there's something like more bank robberies in Columbus, Ohio, in one year than there was in a 20 year period in in the wild west yeah Um, and and an armed society is generally
0: a a peaceful society it's a respectful society because any kind of you know argument or people getting out of line could potentially end in death and obviously there's a higher risk involved with screwing around and offending people so yeah it makes sense I mean if you've got more guns generally there's less crime it's usually in in, you see that in cities like Chicago and Washington DC when the vast majority of the people are disarmed and then the criminals can just kind of run roughshod over everybody else where there's massive crime rates
1: you mean gun laws don't work on criminals who break laws anyway <laughs> <laughs> what are you some kind of nra shill mouthpiece how much are they paying you robert <laughs> i'm waiting for my check i don't know i know me too me too um another uh um Facet of this with the Wild West, I wanted to mention was that um, the government was actually lagging the advancement of people moving west. Um, so the monopoly justice, justice providers, court systems, and, and uh, sheriffs and police departments um, didn't develop until a little bit later after populations had moved west because a lot of it was due to, um, you know, like they would find gold or uh, there'd be um, other reasons for the rapid growth of communities like boomtowns, right? And so San Francisco was an example, which blew up almost overnight. And before the, uh, the monopoly justice provider uh, of the government could be established, the, the city itself, like the residents, the community created their own justice system. And for a time, there were kind of two systems at the same time, like simultaneous. And I forget exactly what the story is, but um, the principal libertarian, who is um, a friend of the show and has a, a great website. He has an article about this where the, um, court system of the U.S. found some I think deputy or someone who had committed some crime. They found him innocent or not guilty. Um, But then the other justice system, that was the community, was um, still in operation. And they were like, well, oh, screw this. He obviously did this. So they went and tried him and found him guilty and hung him. So justice actually did prevail. He was one of those crony types. Well, that's sort of not quite right. Um, he was one of the connected types to the, you know, the government system. And so he was getting cover, right? You know, like when uh, you see these um, cops that go into people's apartments and shoot them. Um, and then inevitably they get off. They don't get charged with murder or, or with a crime. They get perhaps a slap on the wrist and, and maybe a paid vacation. Uh, it was probably the, um, you know, a the, the the nascent uh beginnings of that sort of structure right where the cops can do no wrong and if they ever do get um into a court system nine times out of ten they get out of it you know what I'm talking about right
0: I do know what you're talking about if they ever don't get out of it it's because they went against whatever their procedures were or whatever their training was regardless of how immoral their training was
1: yeah so uh, anyway that's another Wild west thing um that uh I'll put in the show notes as well the um the Principal Libertarian article on that. It's super good. Um, What else do I have related to this? Oh, the the robber barons we talked about. We actually touched on this last week when we were talking about smoking the bandit. Uh, And I have a note here that I wrote down. Um, Rockefeller tried and failed to gain a monopoly. He lowered prices around 80% over a 20-year period and missed out on uh, the Texas oil boom because all of his oil find was in, um, I think, Pennsylvania. That's where Standard Oil was. And he kept buying other refineries. He kept trying to buy out competitors and it became sort of a thing where people would just build a refinery, whether it worked or not, because they knew he would buy it. So he actually created a market for um, buying refineries. So he was driving up the price of refineries. Uh, And he eventually had to give up because he wasn't able to maintain his, uh, his position of how much uh, market share he had. And he still ended up reducing the price, like your point in the episode was he ended up saving the whales because kerosene, no wait, what was it? Uh, Whale whale oil was used for lighting lanterns. Yeah. And then kerosene was the big thing. Gasoline wasn't even a big deal back in the early Rockefeller times, right? Gasoline was just like leftover garbage. I mean, it wasn't until the automobile became a big deal that uh, even gasoline was was a significant player in this. It was all about kerosene and, and lighting lamps and things like that. Um, Another attempted uh, effort at monopoly was Nabisco, the national biscuit company. They tried to create a monopoly by buying out competitors for a few years before giving up on the idea as well. They announced this in their annual report back in the early 1900s. And basically there they were saying, well, this, this isn't working. (laughs) Um, you know, there's, there's no way to maintain this, uh, these monopolies and cartels uh, on a free market because there's open competition, right? If, if you restrict supply uh, to, in, a, in an attempt to raise price, that's sending signals out to others that are like, oh, hey, the prices for these things are like super high and there's a demand for them. Let's nip in there, and we'll have newer equipment because we're we're building a facility, and they've got old equipment, so we'll be more efficient than them, and we'll take we'll eat their lunch, right? So anyway, that's why in the uh, progressive era, and I, I swear we'll talk about the movie, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why you had to get collusion with government and writing regulations and uh, and, and other uh, things to inhibit competitors from entering the market or making it so burdensome that only the large players could comply with all the requirements. So as a way of protecting uh, the connected to government, the cronies. So there, I wrapped it back to cronies. Add a baby. Add a boy. Add a boy. So anyway, let's uh, let's talk about this movie a little bit. Um, I think you had asked me what what I thought about the, the three of them, right? So, you know, Seven Samurai, I think, was the, the better of the three. And then the remake, we talked about how it sort of fell apart at the end. There's some overacting, some unnecessary scenes. The newest one, I thought that um, the actor or the uh, director is Fuqua. I, I was ready to say before watching it that he Fuqua'd it up, you know, because I was trying to be punny. And you know how we are with bad puns on the show here?
0: I know how you are, yes. yes.
1: Oh, you threw a few good <laughs> through.
0: Only when you drop the ball do I pick <laughs> it up.
1: Well, thank you for that. Uh, so anyway, I was really prepared to say I was going to hate that movie. And I ended up not hating it. it. It wasn't terrible. It was entertaining. It was certainly character-driven, like you know the various actors and, and things like that. The story wasn't as good. Like you said, the, um, the caricature of a robber baron, who also happened to be like this ruthless psychopath, who would just shoot people on a whim um, just seemed ridiculous. Like they were trying to paint him as this evil capitalist when he was doing anything but capitalism, when he was doing the evil shit.
0: Right. There's even a line in the beginning when he's in the church, and he says something about God and capitalism and how Christianity or something or other endorses capitalism and how he's just being a capitalist. And it's the exact opposite of capitalism. If you're capitalism is just voluntary exchange and private property. That's that's all it is.
1: Yeah. And that was even Marx's definition of it in the manifesto, in the communist manifesto. Of course, later on he uh he ended up describing what would be considered mercantilism and he conflated the two. Um You know, he's talking about collusions with government and restrictions and and price controls and uh, licenses and things like that. And yeah, those are things that are government. Those are state. Those are not capitalism. Those are cronyism. And when you kind of can float between the two uh, to suit your argument, then you end up Um, confusing a lot of people. I mean, even to this day.
0: Well, see, this is what makes me hate the third movie, or not necessarily hate it, but that's my big problem with it. Like, what's the left? The left's argument is always, this is unfettered capitalism. This is what happens when you have capitalism just unchained to do whatever it wants. And that's why you need government to come in and be the adult and the, be the police in the room and to control this horrible system. But that's not what happens in the movie. The movie is, here's this unfettered capitalism going about killing people and whatever. And what saves the day are essentially entrepreneurs. So what's the, what's the message here?
1: Yeah, I, I feel like maybe it's an accidental Message, you know, of getting it right, like they're blaming capitalism in the, you know, in the creation of the problem. Um, but then I think they don't realize that it's capitalism that's actually solving the problem, and the the creation of the problem is is actually just evil doing, right?
0: Yeah, that's why it's 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 a mixed muddled message that I don't think I don't think whoever wrote this movie understands what they're talking about.
1: Yeah. It, we, we talked about doing this movie because we wanted to compare and contrast a movie that had been done, you know, decades ago versus a movie that's made in more recent times with how social media has sort of like firestormed this whole um SJWism, like, put it at the, fore- at the forefront. Um, you would refer to it as the Twitterati. Like, everything is hate speech. Everyone is racist. Um, people get doxed, and, and they try to get people fired from their jobs or other positions just for, like, saying something that's so- usually rather innocuous. I mean, yeah, there are some, you know, offensive things, but I think that people should be able to be offensive and then you as a another person should be able to decide whether you want to associate with them or not right um, yeah, I think it's that called these- being an
0: adult it's called you know sticks and stones I mean it's called you know you're giving that person so much power for have, with their words right I mean words only have the power that we give them so when someone can say a word and it makes you so upset that you demand that those people be destroyed utterly. It's like, how much power does this person have over you? Are you kidding me? What a joke.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and they equate these words to actual violence, right? And so then they can claim, well, I'm just defending myself. Right. Uh, which is another perversion. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's really bizarre. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with, with the advent and uh, proliferation of social media and um, the, you know, the trophy culture that we grew up with, where everyone's a winner. It's all about self-esteem, making people feel good. No one, no one can lose kind of a deal. And I think in, uh, I want to say our Wally episode, we talked about how there was an effort by some psychologist who was recommending that schools outlaw or ban best friends. And our takeaway from that was, well, then if you're going to force everyone to be friends with everyone and not have a best friend, then you're going to remove any incentive any of these kids have to like be an agreeable person, to be likable, to learn and navigate the social you know, web of uh, how to interact with other people. And you're really stunting them at that point. And I feel like that that is another contributing factor. That type of thing uh, has infantilized people. And now, you know, they're in their 30s and 40s and and they're still children in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, yeah. If you don't let people grow up, if you're helicopter parenting them till they're 20 years old, whatever, if you never let them play on their own, you know, negotiate amongst themselves and decide for themselves. I heard a new term the other day, uh, lawnmower parenting, which is we've gone from helicopter parenting where the parent's always hovering around the child to now the, the parent is actually you like have their hands on the shoulders of the kid and like pushing them around, steering them around to do things.
1: Oh yeah. I think I saw that article. I didn't read all of it, but the, I think the headline was like these parents like bulldoze any obstacles out of the way of the kid. So they're, you know, going in there um, in any environment that the kid is about to enter, making sure it's safe for the kid or, or asserting their dominance over, you know, that area. Like they'll go in and talk to the teachers and be like, no, you give my kid good grades or something like that. That's
0: just so bizarre. It, it is it is it's got to be some sort of failure somewhere in parenting process of those people, of the parents today, like were they never taught that people need to have challenges in order to overcome them in order to feel good? I mean, if you go through life on God mode, there's no incentive for you to ever improve, to improve your angle, your, your approach, your thinking. And then you go out into the real world and all of a sudden the world isn't catered to you. What, what, what's going to happen? sounds like a a setup for a nightmare.
1: You're going to find out real quick. I think. Uh, yeah. I, I actually I have a couple of points on this and then and then we can get back to the movie. But um, speaking of, uh, you know, raising our kids, I feel like we are a bit of helicopter parents, but we try to be very careful in it. We try to make it not um, because we said so, but because, hey, if you do this, here's what's the potential to happen, you know, and then, yeah, you'll learn from it, but you also have a broken arm. <laughs> you know if you jump off the couch and land on the on the slate you know concrete whatever in front of the house uh, it's going to be bad for you um so i mean we're we're rather protective of our of our kids but speaking of the um not being challenged we've talked about our experiences in high school and uh i had uh, uh, over the course of of the four years in in high school i figured out how to get the grades without as much effort as might have been intended to be required and so when I got to college, I, my first semester was awful because it was back when college was a quantum leap forward in the uh, amount of effort that was expected and needed to, to do well. And it uh, reset my thinking because I was finally challenged, right? Like I couldn't just float through um, sort of like I'd listen to the lectures or whatever, take a few notes, but not particularly do the readings or, um, you know, the homework and, and still be able to get by pretty well in high school. And then in college, I just, I I met that reality of, of that wasn't going to fly anymore. And then it took me just another semester or two to like figure it out. And then I ended up doing really well in college. But anyway, that's sort of like, to your point, you know, until you are faced with the real challenges, you're not going to change. You're not going to adapt. You're not going to be able to really learn from those experiences. That's right. It's like that, the shirt
0: with the, with the fat kid that says I'm already number one. So why try harder?
1: (laughs) You know. Yeah, baby. That's not what your what your shirt says, right? <laughs> it might. You can just write it on there with Sharpie. Uh, what else do we want to talk about? I have a couple of notes from the first movie that I thought were pretty good. Okay, let's do it. All right, so this was a bit of a nod to uh, Marginal Utility where Charles Bronson, he gets approached with the job. And this is after... Um, Yule Brenner had been uh, offered um, everything the town had. And he goes, Oh, I'd never been offered everything. You know, because that was like very significant because it was like not a whole lot of money to him, but because the town was scraping together everything they could, it was was more meaningful to him. Uh so when they approach Charlie Bronson, he's out cutting wood, they go, It's a twenty dollar job. You're probably gonna die. And uh, it's like six weeks of work. And he's like, Well, you know, when I did this other job it was like eight hundred dollars and, and uh this other job was six hundred dollars. But you know what right now, twenty dollars is a lot of money. So yeah, I'll do it. I'm in. So anyway, I thought it's that was good. No, it's good stuff.
0: You're absolutely right you know, different amounts. And then you're not only getting paid in money. These guys were getting paid in the sense of justice in the sense of right and the, the sense of being able to help other people and changing the world more to what they want, their world to, that they want to live in is to be, to be like. They want to live in a world where people will take the shirt off their back and help each other out in a great time of need. And they're working to do that. Even they're putting their lives at risk.
1: Right, and you've made this point before where, you know, we, we do this show, And it brings in a little bit of uh, affiliate money and a couple of Patreon dollars here and there, but we would do the show anyway, right? Because we receive compensation in other ways. It's not just money, right? And there's actually a quote in the movie where he says, not all men are motivated by the same things. Some want money, some want the competition and others want other things. Um, And I think they're referring to one of the um, really good gunslingers that he's in competition with himself to just see how good he can be at being so lethal you know, and so fast on the draw.
0: Right. This is a chance for him to show his skills and that doesn't come around all the time. Sure. There's just any number of reasons why people would do this situation, but people claim that it would never happen under uh, an anarchic system.
1: Well, we deal in lead, friend.
0: Can we talk about the terrible scene where the over actor guy dresses up in a sombrero in a bandolier and oh. all of a sudden he just pretends to be one of the bad guys and he just uh. has this terrible accent and it's like, does nobody recognize him not being in the gang? It's like, right. I've never seen you before. Why would I just assume you're in the gang? So bad.
1: Now, was the gang in this one, was it like 40 guys or was it 200 guys? I think the newer one was 200 guys.
0: And it's like 40 guys. Yeah. We would know each other. Every single guy would know every other single guy.
1: And they did um, in that very scene. The one guy is saying, oh, when uh, this guy got shot by the fountain and this guy got caught in the ropes and this guy, and they he mentioned them by name, right? And he, he listed like seven or eight people who had been killed in the initial uh, confrontation. And right. he knew exactly when and where they died and how and who they were. And then up walks Chico wearing the dumb hat <laughs> and he like lights the cigar for the lead guy. Um, what's his name? Calvero. And it's like, n- no one knows who, who this guy is. And he just walks in, waltzes into this gang.
0: He just waltzes into the camp like he lives there. And they're just like, hey, what's up? Like you're supposed to be here, even though I've never seen you before in my life. And you get the worst accent of all time.
1: Yeah. So that was totally, totally bizarre. Um, but you know the, the, this is leads into the um, the sort of turn right in the movie because he goes back and reports to the um, to the Magnificent Seven guys. Hey, they're gonna they're gonna show up at dawn, right? They want to p- give us payback, right? Because a bunch of their guys died and now they're pissed off. Um, but when they uh, when he tells them that, they end up going out towards um, Calvero to that campground, right? To that camp spot and find out that those guys are gone. And then they get back to the village. And the villagers had let Calvero's gang in and they set a trap for the Magnificent Seven. So the villagers turned on him. And I thought that was sort of unbelievable, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't buy that. I mean, Calvero had already... Demonstrated that he is not a guy you can trust, you know. And they talked about how he left them enough money to get or enough food to survive, and how he was generous in that. So wait, his generosity was not stealing all of it. Yeah,
0: one of the farmers, I think, in the beginning of the movies, like, yeah, but he's always he always left us enough to eat for the winter. He wouldn't steal everything. So it's like the real kind of
1: he's like a feudal lord at that point, right?
0: It's a real Stockholm syndrome sort of thing where you're just like loving your oppressors.
1: Yeah. So so. After this, um, you know, the townspeople turn on them and then there's this, uh, what do you call it? The, um, ambush, the Magnificent Seven get disarmed, right? And they hand, on, they hand in their guns and then they get to leave and then they get their guns back. And then they decide to go and attack Calvero. So I'm like, Calvero, what the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> you got these guys who killed like eight or nine of your guys and y- y- You've disarmed them. You you have the, the drop on them. Just shoot them. I mean, if that's what you're going to do, then do it. Well, but uh, he was trying
0: to recruit them because they were obviously very skilled.
1: Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I felt like it was a big mistake on Calvaro's part. And I mean, obviously it was uh, because they come back and uh, kill him and all of his guys. And there's way more than 40 guys who die. It reminded me of the Outlaw Josie Wales that we did a few weeks ago, where there's supposed to be like a set number of people, but they show ugh, maybe 60 people die in the in the shootout. Did you notice that? Like, it just seemed like they were just driving like flies and they were just everywhere. Oh, yeah. way, way more than 40 people.
0: Yeah, I don't think that... It's, this is of the, the time when... I mean I guess this is really the time when bullets like were endless, but I, I don't know if it's for dramatic tension or what, but apparently I don't know every stunt man needs to die like ten times i I, I don't know I, I, I don't get it
1: and then they can go write a, a script on the back of a napkin and share it with the biggest movie star of the time and make a smoking the bandit.
0: And this is the, the time when all the if you got shot, you always clutched your chest or the gun shot wound, and then you immediately fell over
1: dead like instantly unless you're the good guy. <laughs> Well, Let's yeah. talk about that. In the 2016 version, all the bad guys get shot and die almost instantaneously. But yeah. all the good guys can take shot after shot after shot and still keep going, especially Chris Pratt. Come on, man. Seriously, he gets shot like nine times. The hard lord can take it, baby. <laughs> Yeah, Star-Lord had no problem uh, still advancing after being shot multiple times. And then he he plays dead and then lights the dynamite to, like, take out the Gatling gun. Which, it seemed to me that the Gatling gun was, like, so overpowered and so over-feared. Um, like, it didn't seem realistic. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a machine gun, right?
0: Well, it's a, like a big 50 cal machine gun. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure on the caliber, but I'm pretty sure it was, it was really large, especially back in those days. So, I think it was a 50 caliber type machine gun. Okay. And... I mean, I don't know what kind of a velocity those bullets are being fired with, if they're going to be punching through, you know, like 10 different walls, but they made it seem as if the buildings that it was firing into, these bullets were just flying through these buildings and punching through people and then flying through buildings behind them as if they were like rail guns or something. But yeah, yeah, it, it definitely seemed like they really wanted to have this weapon be like a nuclear bomb style power, just overwhelming.
1: Yeah, and it, it was like run away. <laughs> you know, they got the gallon gun, but you know, two hundred guys with like rifles and, and handguns isn't enough to make you you know run away. I don't know. It just seemed a little bit weird. Um, uh, and by the way, this second one I call Training Day Two because you've got the reunited Denzel and uh, Ethan Hawke.
0: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the? Uh, I don't know. At least there were kind of like character arcs. In this one, Um, it was a little more stylized. I mean, they had a lot of the same beats. There was the the scene where they're having a, like a skill duel. And then one, of them, the one guy's not happy about it. So then they actually duel for real. And it, it seemed like there was more of a backstory, more effort put into each character's backstory. So it was a little bit more of a, an arc for each character. They had a little bit more personality, I think, in this latest one than in the original. But it's just a real shame. I really wanted, I, I wanted the movie without the dumb jabs at capitalism is what I wanted.
1: Yeah, I think it would have been fine if he was just a bandit you know with a with a with a gang who was terrorizing the towns you know like in the other one
0: yeah i don't know why they had to felt the need to change that other than to yeah everybody hates those robber barons so that will be a good one i mean yeah i i guess you could technically say they're not demonizing all robber barons they're just saying that this guy is a robber baron and he's evil but come on you can't really just do that without really specifying that this is outside of the norm because this was not something that Rockefeller did. I mean, this is not what these guys did. They didn't go around murdering people and taking over towns like this. There was even a dig at um which is probably maybe a little more justified. But what was that band of private security kind of people?
1: Oh, the Pinkertons, yeah. There you go. Yeah.
0: Cuz that was kind of what he hired. He kind of hired the Pinkertons, right? It was like wasn't there in the scene in the in the recent
1: in the remake? Yeah, it was a different name, but I think yeah, it's what it's supposed to be is is that style of private security.
0: Right. And And
1: supposedly there's a historical action where the Pinkertons
0: actually did take over a town and kill a bunch of people. At least that's what's alleged. I don't know if it's true or not, but that is the story. So that's probably what they're building off of for this movie. But I don't know, man. It just seemed to me that they're kind of painting with a broad brush a little bit in the creation of their characters. And they're they're playing with things they don't truly understand, and it just gets a little bit messy.
1: Yeah, I did like that. Um, Robichaux, Ethan Hawke, and Pratt were both Southerners, and they referred to the Civil War as the War of Northern Aggression. I was very surprised to hear that in a recently made movie because that's that's something you hear in in circles we run in. You know, not yeah. in mainstream at all. Or
0: in or in older movies talking about the South, like. Like, uh, oh, I don't know. I think, I feel like I've heard that phrase in other movies before, but.
1: Yeah, well, Outlaw Josie Wales, they they actually had a fairly, um, you know, negative perception of the Union soldiers. Right. I mean, they were the, the villains, right? The red legs. Right. And I felt that was a bit surprising for the time. Uh, and that was in, um, what, 1971, I want to say. And so this being 2016, when they're tearing down Confederate statues left and right, and now the, the confederate battle flag is like a a race racist symbol apparently i mean i've been i used to you know travel here and there and um i was in florida a couple of times and that was like a thing that you would see everywhere like all the gift shops had a confederate flag it was just like a thing it was just oh you're in the south that's you know it's what you have and now now displaying it and even referring to it is is a hate crime almost it's ridiculous
0: well, I grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard, and to me, that flag always was always plastered all over the General Lee. And to me, that was more of a symbol of rebellion and, you know, thumbing your nose to the the of you know the corrupt cops that were always trying to get them. Just like it's more of one of like independence. So that's what it always meant to me. But yeah, lately it really has been kind of turned into this. If you're if you if you display this, is you're essentially in in the KKK and you want all non-white people to die.
1: Or or be slaves, right? Right. I mean, who doesn't, right? Um, no, I'm just kidding. So the other thing that they talked about is, um, I mentioned in the 2016 remake that they brought in all of these different um, races and, and characters into the movie that weren't there before. Like in the original, it's all Japanese people. And in the 1960 version, pretty sure it's just all white dudes, right?
0: Except for the Mexican family that they're or the family all right. that they Take care of.
1: Yeah. Um, but in the new one, It's like you got an Asian guy, you got a Mexican guy, you got an Irish guy, you got a black guy, you got an Indian guy. Did I already say that? Anyway, out of the seven, you've got two white guys, (laughs) I think, something like that. Anyway, not that I care too much, but it's like... you. It felt pandering, you know? It felt like, all right, we got to we gotta check this box and check this box and check this box.
0: Right, like if you're going to have characters talking about the War of Northern Aggression, but then you've got them all hanging out with people of all races, I guess you get some sort of a lefty cover for that. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It, it just seemed weird. Um, and then they talked about with, um, what was the guy's name? Um, he played like the... The hefty dude, with the bearded guy, bearded jacket guy.
0: religious bear guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, I guess, was famous for hunting Indians and collecting scalps. And they made reference to the government no longer pays for scalps. And I thought that was like a perfect line to discuss real briefly, because that is a demonstration of how the government is, what was the driving force behind a lot of these evil policies, right? Jim Crow laws were just that, laws by governments. Slavery was encoded in law. At the time, the Fugitive Slave Act was law. It was government law. So it's not that the individual people are necessarily able to get away with doing these types of things um, without this sort of affirmative, you know, like, oh, yep, it's permitted. It's it's lawful. You can do this. Uh, No repercussions. Do you you follow what I'm saying? Like people look to government as the solution for so many problems. Like that's the first thing they think of. But they they seem to just give them a complete pass, even after just mountains of evidence of them doing horrible shit uh, historically.
0: Right. And encouraging horrible shit and basically, yeah, setting up atrocities to occur. Now you pointed out a better example, but I'm also going to, I'm going to come up with it. I'm going to bring up this other example that just shows just how stupid government is. So back in the early 1900s when great Britain was colonizing India and they were kind of ruling over India and they had all this, these snakes, in the forest and in the villages and kind of causing problems and that sort of thing. And so the British, they put out a bounty on snakes. So the villagers would collect snakes and bring them in and get paid for the snakes. Well, it wasn't too long before the villagers found out that they could breed snakes and have like a snake farms. And so they started selling them all these farmed snakes. Well, eventually government got sick of paying for all these snakes. And so the market dried up for all these snakes. So what did the farmers do? But they just released them. So then they had a far worse problem, way more snakes than they ever had to begin with, causing all kinds of problems, cobras just going around killing people. So that's just another way that government screws up incentives, just causes all kinds of problems with unintended consequences, just making problems worse when they try and solve problems.
1: Yeah. And that's the key, right? It's not even malice of forethought in that situation. They're they're literally trying to fix the situation.
0: Right. And they, they think, think that if they offer a price for all these snakes, people will just go and clean up all the snakes and then problem solve. But they don't realize that you no know, people respond to incentives and they will figure out a market if you create a market where there wasn't one.
1: Yep. So it's it's uh, the fatal conceit, right? It's 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 the hubris of thinking that they can solve the situation when all they're doing is creating an incentive for really the opposite thing to happen. I mean, and that's, that's like not even the same ballpark as the normal opposite day that that government tends to do which is name the bill something positive when it actually does something the exact opposite yeah but anyway uh, we are almost towards the end of the show here so do you have any other things you want to discuss before we get into the final summary and review sir
0: Oh, the only thing that I would have to discuss would be something that would go take a really long time. Um, you know, how bad is the bad guy that just orders people to be killed, and where does the 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 blame lie, the the responsibility lie? Is it on him, or is it on his his thugs who carry out the murders? Um, if if you're interested in that discussion, check out a recent episode of uh, Peaceful Treason. They get into that. We've talked about it before on this show too, but um, it's a long discussion, and uh, I don't want to not do it justice. So um, check that out if if you're interested in that. But anyway. All right.
1: Yeah, shoot me the link for that and I'll put it on the show notes page for this one. And maybe if we've got some time, we'll put it in the uh, Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is available for our Patreon supporters. So if people are interested in that, Send us some dollars at lastnighters.com Patreon and you might hear uh, us touch on it a little bit. Um, I've got about uh, 34 minutes from right now until my economics group meets. So we still got to wrap up this before we get into that. And then I do the other thing. So, Magnificent Seven, sir. Let's go final summary review.
0: Okay, okay. Well, um, the original is very much a movie of its time, although for the themes that it brought, I mean, of course, it's just playing, it's remaking Seven Samurai for a Western audience. And I think it did a great job of that. Uh, uh, Dead spots and filler and terrible acting aside, I really enjoyed it, especially the first time I saw it And um, for its you know, it's themes of liberty. It was a group of people who had a problem. And even though they didn't have a ton of money to pay, they got a lot of really talented people to help them out because those people wanted to live in a better world and also get paid a little bit, you know, and uh, they were willing to take that risk. And uh, it's just kind of a, a, a signpost where you can point to and go, now, does this seem realistic to you or not? Because I think it looks far more realistic than it looks unrealistic because there are people called cops who do this for not a lot of money and even though i would argue that cops don't do a great job and have the wrong incentives in fact they're a monopoly force and all that thing but there are people you know they who have a sense of justice in at heart even after the system corrupts it and destroys it and screws it all up there are people who initially you know at least want to make the world a better place and carry out a sense of justice and they're not looking to get Super rich. I mean, they, you know what I mean. Anyway, so um, the original seven magnificent people running around on horses and shooting bad guys is a good movie. And uh, it's a good it's a good like 7.5. The remake uh, is a much better shot movie. It's like got some really gorgeous scenery. You can tell that the production value is way up. You know, it's like a modern blockbuster-y type movie, obviously with all this high level acting talent. Um, Chris Pratt, almost at the height of his Popularity, Denzel, kind of towards the end of his career, but still really strong actor. Ethan Hawke, um, and then a bunch of other kind of young up and comers, uh, all really good, uh, except for the the fumbling of the entire plot, or at least the the motivation behind the villain, um, where they just they just fumble the ball, man. I I don't understand what I mean. I guess I do understand the the narrative of the the evil robber barons, and they're just all terrible, and they, all they do is go around stealing from people, which is. Completely factually, historically inaccurate. Maybe there were a few instances where things and crappy stuff happened. But overall, people weren't just at the mercy of these industrialists. They, these industrialists made lives better. Far and away, not even close. You went from people toiling in the soil and backbreaking labor to working in a factory, which is much preferable. It made way more money and you didn't have to be out in the elements. And of course there's downsides to that too, but they far preferred it. Anyway, um stick to the movie, Johnson. Uh 2016, uh I'm gonna give it uh six point five. Still a good movie, still a- Worth seeing uh, the main plot's still there, but just not quite as good. I mean, uh, you know, if you want, if you, it's better crafted, it's just not as well written. Okay. I'm done. Daniel.
1: All right. Go. And he's done. He's done now, folks. He's done. All right. So I'm actually going to give three different scores because I actually watched the three movies, including seven samurai. And I'll start with the seven samurai. Um, I felt like this, Seven Samurai has a well-earned reputation as being a masterpiece film, and it takes its time uh, in developing the characters and the story. There's a lot more of the planning that goes into defending the town and the reasons why, the motivations why each of those players is there. And to watch it kind of unfold is like watching a, a chess match, um, especially, you know, if you're like familiar with the, the different types of moves and openings and things like that. So it is uh, really amazing as well when you realize uh, that it was made in the 50s. I think it was shot in 1953 or 1954. And the cinematography is just beautiful. There's, there's so many different elements um, in, in just the uh, presentation of it. So it's definitely worth a watch. It's three and a half hours long, but I'm going to give it like a nine. I mean, that is just a beautiful, beautiful movie. The, the 1960 version, it's a lot of fun. It's, you know, the height of Westerns are kind of like a big deal at this time of year or this time of the of movie making craft. Um, the story is a lot more libertarian. It is a lot more people coming together uh, for a good cause, like helping out each other and uh, working. It, it, they, they also talked about the... Um, you know, the town pooling its resources to hire these guys to defend the town. And they refer to uh, the town offering them everything. I've never worked for everything. That line is also in the newer one. I think it's also in seven samurai or some derivative of that, of that uh, kind of story. But, um, it's it's a it's a really well done movie. I think it does tend to have that overacting that we talked about, especially with that young actor who was probably um, overcompensating because the other guys were so much more famous. And his role was to be the Mifune character from Seven Samurai, uh, who was an outrageous scene stealer um, in that. So I'm going to go with an eight on the 1960 version. And then finally, the 2016 version, very much um, actor and character driven, this one. Um, I, I did find that the production value was was very high. Um, I wanted to get to know more about the characters and that was a bit of a nod to how Kurosawa did Seven Samurai. Like, I felt like the 1960 version, we didn't really get to know the guys all that well. But in the Seven Samurai version and in the newer version, you sort of do get more of the backstory. You get to know uh, more about the guys themselves. So I, I did appreciate that. Um, like you said, I didn't like that the villain was this mustache-twirling, monocle-wearing Monopoly guy uh, who was hell-bent on just being as evil as possible and then uh, getting painted with the capitalist brush. I felt like that was unnecessary. Um, you could have just made him just be a bad guy. And it, it, the story would have worked anyway and probably actually been a lot better. So for that, I'm going to knock that one down just one more level. Two a seven for a Magnificent Seven. So that is my summary and review nine, eight, and seven for my scores for all three of the movies. So, Robert, before we wind down, uh, did we agree on what we're going to do next? I think... I think we're heading uh, down under for our guest, perhaps, to talk about a cartoon movie. Yeah,
0: that's right. Dark Knight Returns, the animated. It's part one and part two based on the original Frank Miller classic comic book. It's actually quite faithful rendition from page to screen. And uh, yeah, we'll have our uh, resident Batman boy from down under to join us on that one. So it should be good.
1: All right. So everyone join us next week for the animated film. What's it called? Dark Knight Returns? Part one and two. Part one and two. All right. Well, hey, we need to uh, wind this one down. We've been going a little extra long in the tooth. So thank you guys for joining us. This has been The Last Nighters, um, episode 38, The Magnificent Seven. Show notes and more at lastnighters.com 38. So thank you guys again, and uh, have a good night. Good night from last night. Peace out. All right, and we've got a few more minutes for actual anarchy before we get into some KTO. Oh 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 oh. Oh 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 oh. Oh 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 oh. The right stuff. So, just bringing you back to your roots there, Robert. I know that you're probably dancing in your head there for just a moment.
0: Yeah, I was a big new fan.
1: Huge. I was a Donnie boy. Yeah, Donnie Wahlberg? Wahlberg, right? And his younger brother is Marky Mark. Yeah, there you go. So, anyway, uh I I hope we did this movie justice um i felt like in watching them that that i had a lot more to say and then it it took us a few days to actually get to recording and i think i lost some of my edge some of my recency so you can blame you me know, we still win an hour we still won a good hour and hopefully it was a good conversation i hope people enjoyed it and uh if you want more those things are true yes we hope lots of things <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway um actual anarchy friends um we do the last nighter version So that you have something you can share with friends and family. We are trying to make uh, an impact culturally, right? We want to inculcate our ideas in ways that kind of are honest. People are unassuming that we're preaching at them. You know what I mean? Like you can't share actual anarchy as a show as easily as a show called The Last Nighters, right? Just on its face. Like a lot of people are going to be turned off just by the book cover alone
0: right just with the the fact that people think anarchy is still a terrible thing even in this day and age even though there seems to be a ton of anarchists out there i mean they're you know lefty anarchists but there's a a bunch of those and then there's a whole bunch of anarcho-capitalists and voluntarists and libertarians it's i think you know when you're the most consistent political message you know political ideology i think that attracts At least people can attract to it, you know, just for being principled. I think principles are very attractive things, even to people that are just openly only pragmatic. I think they can still even appreciate it, even if they don't believe it's pragmatic necessarily. I don't know if they're necessarily going to come over, but I think you can gain some appreciation.
1: Yeah, you know, I look at it as the principles act as the beacon right? And not everyone's going to agree with them. But if you're consistent and don't waver on them, then the people who are persuaded by those things or who hold those feelings and those thoughts, um, whether they don't even necessarily know how to like articulate it, they'll find you. If, if you are consistent in, in that message.
0: Right, which is why Gary Johnson just fell flat for, I think, really expanding the message, in my view.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why um, Ron Paul was so good. Um, and even he wavered, I think, a little bit um, in his constitutionalism. Like, I, I think the Constitution is... I'm a spooner man on that, I think, that... I didn't sign it. No one I know signed it. It's null and void. doesn't affect me, or shouldn't affect me. Doesn't shouldn't apply. Um, but I think because he was so consistent that... At least in my personal experience, I felt like hearing him talk, he was articulating ideas that I held in the back of my head that I didn't know how to how to uh, how to say right how to how to get them out. And so it was it was a way to um, to find find my calling. I don't know if I'm saying this right, but like, because he was as consistent as he was in his messaging, I was able to identify with it and find things seated in with, within myself to where now I understand what some of the um, theory is behind it. Right. What some of the principles are and, and here we are today doing a show.
0: And yet hit pieces on libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism still can't even get the basic things right. Just not even close. Like they don't even talk about the non-aggression principle because they know they can't attack the non-aggression principles. So they, they go, well, it's the, the, the philosophy of the Koch brothers and they're Darth Vader. So you should hate them too. And it's just sophomoric and idiotic.
1: Yeah, Or identity, identity yeah. politics. Yeah, and
0: it's, it's the philosophy of white men. <laughs> and that's why you should hate it.
1: Anyway, anyway. Oh, I I, um, wanted to mention this is found on the Launchpad Media. I didn't mention that earlier. So go to the Launchpad Media and you'll find the last night version of the show. And uh, this show is at actualanarchy.com slash 95. So what do you say we wind this down and do a few minutes of the Kathleen Turner overdrive? Sure, buddy. Let's do it. All right. Well, hey, everyone, thank you for joining us. This has been Actual Anarchy, episode 95 on Magnuson 7. Peace out.